The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our special guest is David Sibbett. Now, David has been here before. He's an old hand at this, and we love having him here because he has a very different take on, on how to really kick up leadership, how to really kick up performance and productivity with teams. And he is president and founder of the Grove Consultants International. And, you know, he's really a pioneer in visual facilitation. We'll talk more about that. He's the author of a three-volume visual leadership series, um, one, the first one being Visual Meetings, Visual Teams is the second one. His, most, his latest is Visual Leaders, New Tools for Visioning, Management, and Organization Change. David, welcome back to Leading Conversations. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm very glad to be back. It's always it's, fun to talk with you. Oh, it's great to have you here. Hey, where are you today? I'm in sunny San Francisco. My spring is here, and it's glorious. Isn't it amazing? The Bay Area has been having a just delightful weather, almost feeling like summer, huh? Yes, it does. Yeah. So, and of course, we get the nice fog, too, <laughs> along with it. Well, that's true. You're out at the Presidio in San Francisco, and summertime tends to be a little chilly, June, July, uh-huh. and a little bit of August, yeah? And right now it's a little bit of summer, and then in September, summer comes back. It's a great time uh-huh. to be there. So we're pleased that you're here today because uh, your latest book, Visual Leaders, is really taking off. You have actually created um, a three-volume series around using visual graphics. And, you know, visual facilitation, the use of interactive graphics is not something that everybody knows how to do. And... I know that you got into this fairly early in your career, and when you were facilitating and helping groups process um, what they were wanting to do, a la strategic planning, visioning sessions, creativity, etc. So give us just a little synopsis of how you came to believe that not only was this something you could help do, but you could help teach people how to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I was part of a group of folks in the 1970s who were professionalizing facilitation out here on the West Coast. Um, I worked in leadership development for an organization called Coro Foundation, which is now the Coro Center for Civic Leadership here in San Francisco. 
And we were next door neighbors to Interaction Associates, whom you may have heard of. But David Strauss and yeah. Michael Doyle were busy professionalizing facilitation, and David's father had been head of the American Arbitration Association. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, he thought it was odd that negotiators, mediators, and arbitrators were all organized and professional. But facilitators who worked with groups that were basically dealing with complexity weren't. And so we ended up absorbing a lot of his techniques. And one of the things that they did was they had a facilitator and then a recorder keeping notes on a flip chart. And with their methodology, the recorder just silently recorded and the facilitator ran the meeting. Um, right. I had had experience doing large posters in college announcing events and things. And... Mm-hmm. Um, was actually pretty good at um, being able to draw whatever I wanted. Um, Mm -hmm. And I immediately began working bigger uh, with our seminars. We would have the fellows come in and try to make sense out of what was going on in the city. Uh, They were all in placements in various places four days a week. And by diagramming how city government worked, uh, diagramming how campaigns flowed, you know, what the stages were, uh, we even tried diagramming sociograms of where people sat in relationship to each other, how they mm. felt about each other. But I spent about five years experiencing uh, drawing and meetings as transformative with these Coro fellows in public affairs. And it was really out of that period of experimentation that I began getting requests from people like Stanford Research Institute and others who also were working visually at the time, uh, to support them on certain jobs. And I realized this was a whole emerging field and jumped in with both feet in 1977. Well, you know, I have seen your work. It is stunningly beautiful. I have sat in meetings where you have captured the essence of what is being processed and what the results are, and it's the it's a combination of gathering the words and creating an image and you know on these big posters and it's fabulous and I've always thought oh gosh if I could be an artist I could do that <laughs> yeah you know that's one of the interesting associations um, is I think a, con- a mixing of the idea of what art's about and not really being very clear on what graphic language is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, the, the streams I'm drawing from is journalism, where I was trained as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And um, also uh, general semantics, which is the study of the relationship between the way we represent the world in our minds and what we do in our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, general semantics is kind of a field of applied epistemology. And you may have heard the term, the map is not the territory. Yeah. That comes from the field of general semantics. Or there's another one, the the ladder of abstraction or the ladder of inference. Have you ever heard of that term? I'm not sure I have. (laughs) Well, that's one where... Oh, the ladder of inference, of course. The ladder of inference, yes. That one, yes. We're um, talking on the telephone about imagery. Oh, this is very interesting. Um, In fact, there's a lot of imagery in spoken language in that the way we communicate is we point at things we know other people are going to understand. So I use a word like point at. Well, I'm pretty Mm -hmm. confident you and all the listeners understand what I mean by point. Right. But if you were 
if you were in a race of people who had no hands, that would be meaningless. <laughs> uh, there are many, many embedded metaphors in speech that we use just as a matter of, you know, fact. Right. Matter of fact, that's another right. metaphor. Right. right. Um, we're all scientifically trained and all that kind of thing. So um, I'm actually focusing a lot on getting the story right, which in newspaper work is a lot about getting you know, starting to think hierarchically about what are the headlines, what are the subheads, how do you break this down into chunks right? so that people can understand the story. So that's a lot of what a graphic recorder is doing. Hmm. And then also listening for the embedded way people are making sense out of things, meaning how are they actually putting it together in their own mind. Hmm. And the clue to that is the embedded metaphors in people's speech. So... Working with, uh, say, a strategy group, a management team that's trying to think of their strategy, mm-hmm. um, each of the people on that team has come out of a certain discipline, like one might be a manufacturing person, another person might be an attorney, another might be a financial person. Now, each of them has a built-up experience using representations and symbols, like uh, the spreadsheet guys can read spreadsheets and actually think about business in grid-like ways. But somebody who is in marketing might think storytelling and and have a linear narrative Uh idea in their mind and maybe actually think in terms of brand images and stuff. Uh, A manufacturing guy might actually have a visualization in their mind of the actual factory Uh and the stages that it goes through. And so these people get into a strategy meeting and they're all using language, Uh but they're putting it together differently. And so a lot of the challenge in getting people aligned on what they're thinking is getting people kind of into a similar way of thinking about the organization such that when they do independent actions, they all kind of come together. And this is what I took on directly in this third book, the Visual Leaders book, is um, how can leaders get more conscious of the way they think about their organization and the way they communicate about it and what they can do to support their teams, their leadership teams, being more aligned and more effective by sharing Uh consciousness of their awareness of mental models and stuff. Well, you know, consciousness is a very um, widely used term these days, and leadership consciousness is kind of at the forefront. I'm wondering if you think that the work you're doing is enough to create a conscious organization? Well, that, that, this is one of those terms that zips up and down the ladder of abstraction. Um, right. You know, you turn the word consciousness might be very specific, like you're on a, a web conference and you're wondering if somebody's multitasking, paying attention or not. Mm. <laughs> you might say, I wonder if somebody's conscious that they're talking about uh, an area of work that's in their direct function. Mm-hmm. So you might be thinking, is that person paying attention? That's what you mean by it. Mm-hmm. But you might also use the word to mean, you know, is the consciousness of business waking up to the fact that they've carried embedded costs of pollution for free for years? Mm-hmm. Or is anybody waking up to this kind of thing? Right. Um, you know, and so you don't know when people use a word like that exactly what altitude they're at. Right. The minute you you commit to writing things down during a meeting and 
putting something up on paper, you're suddenly making the act of making sense out of things a public act that then people can challenge. So at least one person is visually listening. And if you look at that recorder and they didn't get it quite right, you then have the ability to challenge them or make it clearer by adding something. So it turns out that this function automatically wakes a group up a little bit on that ladder of consciousness. Um, it not, doesn't necessarily take them into, you know, like spiritual enlightenment or anything. I mean, this is just maybe suddenly not being inside of tape recordings and automatic speaking. You know, suddenly the meeting's kind of back in the real zone of people right. actually struggling to understand each other. Right. So have you had situations where someone has said to the recorder, wait a minute, that's not what we just said, and then someone else oh, in the room the says, when someone else in the room says, well, yes, it is what we just said. Yep. All the time. That is, and learning how to work with that yeah. is part of the facilitative skill. Right. Um, I often will introduce myself as the clown to the group's king. I mean, <laughs> the, the role of the recorder is in some way a gesture role because you can't yeah. get it right. I mean, right. everybody's going to interpret things slightly differently. So if you make it clear that that's part of what's going on here. Now, where it really gets crucial is, you know, when a group's coming down and they're trying to decide on their six priorities for the year or their five priorities, mm-hmm. and they're going to use certain phrases and headlines as the, you know, kind of the pillars of their thinking. There's another metaphor. Um, Mm. The things that are really steady and solid for a period of months, and they're going to repeat and repeat these words. Boy, is it important to understand what people might interpret from those words. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of this work that has to do with actually inviting inquiry about uh, the real resonance of certain words and what the loading is on words. And it's almost like internal branding kind of work right. where you're branding ideas so that they'll have a, get a little bit of attention inside the organization. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious if you have noticed over the years um, the way people engage with this process. Is it different now than it was when you began? Uh, I'm experiencing quite a bit of difference. For one thing, when we began, uh, business visualization consisted of acetates. You know, acetates. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. That's yes. what you did. You had an overhead projector. Right. And occasionally you might have posters for things, but, you know, it was right. really expensive to reproduce big imagery. And so a lot of business was done on spreadsheets and talking. And in talking and storytelling is still kind of the way people manage. Mm-hmm. But if you start thinking about the number of tools that have come online since 1977 when I started, I mean, we didn't have a fax in our company in the 80s, even in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Um, email didn't come until 1993, mm-hmm. ubiquitously. I mean, it started before then. PowerPoint, I think, was somewhere in the you know, early 90s or somewhat, you had, uh, or maybe it was late 80s, somewhere in there, but it became kind of universal in the 90s where people could do PowerPoint easily. Um, Laser printers are relatively new, and colored laser printers are even newer yet. But now we have digital photography, um, we have iPads, we have smartphones, you have everybody's carrying a video camera on their hip. 
you know, if they have a smartphone. Sure. So um, you now have an unleashing of the production tools to the general populace. Mm-hmm. And you, you just look at what the kids are doing. They are absolutely into video the way, you know, we were into typing with an IBM Selectric typewriter. <laughs> I mean, it's like, an <laughs> easy thing to do. You they don't even video. know what that is. <laughs> My they grandchildren are editing is. videos on their smartphone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, and that's really different. So the now, what's not different is interesting. What's not different is this imagery still has to interface with a brain. Mm. And you still are limited by what you see on a flat something, to, you know, a screen or a piece of paper or a display right, of some sort. Right. That's still what you're dealing with. So the visual language that we developed early on in this work is still completely useful. It's just well, appearing in different media. Right. And it seems to me that the whole imagery, you know, the, the looking at something that um, is rather than words, it's yep. an image, or a word has to represent a whole thought. Um, it, it's different today. People expect that more. And, mm-hmm. you know, as... Texting becomes even more popular, um, and the spelling of words seems to be disappearing. Uh, full sentences, you know, grammar, etc., um, doesn't appear to be as important. And so, you know, and I even read last week of something about um, the concept of, of handwriting that that really is going away, and there is a belief um, that the connection of the brain to the pen or the pencil in your hand and the paper to actually writing words actually affects the way we can see. It affects the way we can process not Absolutely. only um, words but images and um, do some critical analysis and thinking. And so it, it seems to me that this whole work, you know, this graphic interface that you are working with is almost like a bridge between those two things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's interesting. I'm a kayaker, and every time you have water going one way, you also have back eddies going the other way. Mm-hmm. And a kayaker learns how to work with those back eddies. So, for instance, yes, there's more and more people relying on keyboards and other things rather than handwriting. At the same time, you're seeing an explosion of these handwritten videos that are kind of speeded up graphics. And we're also finding that the iPad has unleashed a whole bunch of reacquainting with visual note-taking with a stylus. Oh, right. Um, And, you know, so I would consider that sort of a back eddy, but... Right now, I'm experiencing a hockey stick of interest. There's another metaphor. Mm-hmm. Where, where if you were graphing it out, the number of people who were actually calling themselves visual practitioners or calling themselves people who handwrite on the wall or whatever has just zoomed up uh, in the last five or six years or so to the point where there's really a worldwide reclaiming of this on the part of the subset of people who, who appreciate what you're saying. Um, it, let me make one other point about the, the graphics versus the image. Yes. Uh, one of my 
which is Bob Horn, who wrote one of the first books looking at this whole thing called Visual Language, looking at this phenomenon. And what he identified, I think, is important, which is that in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, um, it's the integration of text and graphics that is really kind of the new innovation in that traditionally it took quite a bit of effort to get an image. And they were always kind of presented as an illustration in a book or a special map or a special diagram. Mm. Uh, it's so easy to produce imagery now that practically all the major social media and web pages and magazines, and even, even the Wall Street Journal now looks like a magazine, uh, with color pictures and text integrated. So what you're seeing is... Um, and, and particularly if you look at the field of infographic design, as Tufty has explained it or Saul Worman and other people, right. this is stuff done in a studio. But right. it's the integration of words and image that is opening up a whole new realm of display. And Bob seems to think that this is really almost a new genre of communication. Um, right. A little bit like, you know, the Japanese have four different uh, alphabets that they use. Yeah, yeah. And they've integrated this. In some ways, we've integrated image and text into something, well, I mean, what would you call Instagram? Um, yeah. You know, here here you're captioning pictures. Right, right. Uh, Facebook, captioning right. pictures. Right. Commenting right. on pictures. There's a huge right. amount of that. Right, right. Well, it's I always tell people like when I'm training facilitators, when in doubt, label. Yeah, <laughs> well, and it certainly seems clear, like we label. are um, helping people to speak in shorthand with all of these uh, tools. Mm-hmm. Well, we have more to talk about with David Sibbett when we come right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back with David Civit today, who is the author of Visual Leaders, New Tools for Visioning, Management, and Organization Change. So, David, you have a set of tools that um, you teach people to use to be more effective, and you specifically selected, you know, these tools very much on purpose. Why did you do that? Well, I was thinking, you know, when... 
Wiley and Sons asked me to do this series, they realized that this was a pretty hot area that a lot of people were interested, but there wasn't a lot of theory about what's going on with it, and that's why they wanted to do something about meetings, teams, and organization change, sort of as it goes up in the scale of things. And as I was wrestling with this, of course, it's like writing a book about talking. I mean, this is a language. Mm-hmm. Visual language is language. So how do you begin to do it? Well, my editor is very oriented to people wanting tools. They want to be able to go and do something. Right. And I really got into that orientation, and I think that's a really good way, because if people don't go and try something, they won't get it. Right. Uh, just hearing somebody talk about it doesn't do it. So, uh, the first thing I did it was a little bit of a stretch in terms of what a tool is, but I, I called the first tool mental models, and that's a little bit of what we were talking about in the earlier part of the, the right. thing. The second one I picked, these are really sets of tools, is visual facilitation, which is the just being visible with a person doing graphic recording during a strategy meeting or a regular meeting or whatever. And I, I cover some of the basics there out of the point of view that a leader who wants to be visual doesn't have to be the person who draws. But these days, you really know, need to know how to work with somebody who does and know right. when to when to apply those. So the very best settings for visual facilitation would be during any kind of planning session where you really want to jump outside your normal ways of thinking. Right. Um, so you can go all the way from real innovation kind of workshops. Um, I, I've come to calling a, a lot of this kind of thing agile planning. Uh, mm-hmm. What agile software development does is they you present a concept that's just good enough for the customers to begin using it, and then you get feedback, right. and you start iterating and doing versions. Well, the same thing's true of plans. Um, if you plan in that way and and get a leadership team to just get an idea good enough to go out and share with the other people and then get input and feedback, mm-hmm. uh, you actually can start engaging people at a whole different level. So I was really making the case that, uh, particularly in the time of PowerPoint overuse, um, you really aren't changing anybody by pushing a PowerPoint at them. Right. But in fact, the more information you have, the more people will just filter for what they are looking for. Right, right. And, and they don't. But if you engage people in co-creating stuff, which is what happens when you have a visual facilitator, then they kind of begin to understand what's happening, like you do a picture of the marketplace or whatever. So that was the second tool. The third one was, if you don't draw, and you mentioned always wanting to be able to do that, uh, what we found in the mid-'90s was that we were redrawing the same things over and over and over again. So, for instance, if people want to do an action plan, um, you end up doing a timeline that has some channels, or some people call it swim lanes, time after time. So we ended up making a template of that, uh, a, gra- a graphic template. Um People want to do visioning, and so one of the standard ways of doing visioning is to have people stand in the future and write a story of the future. Mm. So we made a template of uh, something that has a place for a cover of a magazine and then the big headlines on one spread and sidebar stories on another, place for pictures, place for quotes. And we can have small groups um, spend 45 minutes doing writing the story of their future in five years, come back and tell the story. And across four or five groups, you start seeing themes. Mm. And what do you know? Out of this, you know, bubbling creative conversation comes stuff that people really care about. 
So graphic templates are the third essential tool. And I think that somebody who really wants to get their leadership team to visually and systematically struggle with things and not just go to easy answers can use templates like this as a way to get people mm. visual without making it a big deal about drawing at all. Mm. It's really about choosing uh, a structure that's appropriate to what you want to talk about. Right, right. So well, that's the fourth one, part for people yeah, to there, there are several others. I don't know whether you want to go through all of them. But. No, go ahead. Um, the fourth was sort of a bottom line one, which is how do you support decision-making? And I think this is one that lots of leaders struggle with. And um, for those who would love to be more collaborative about it, yet still retain the ability to be the leader and decide in certain cases, um, knowing how to to, uh, create a decision room where you can visualize what your choices are and, and use sticky notes and dots and all kinds of other things to start doing polling of people. Is actually a pretty essential kind of tool if you want people to kind of see the forest for the trees mm. when they're making critical decisions. Um, one of my friends is, was the CEO of Gensler & Associates, which is a prominent architecture firm. And he says he would not do a project without having a decision room. Mm. Uh, and In fact, they now have learned how to create a big mural they call their project room on a, on a mural that has all the essential things the client should know about the project on one big mural. And they bring it in and they put it up in a room and they create kind of an instant decision room. So these are the kind of essential tools that I'm dealing with there. I mean, the other ones I won't necessarily describe them all would be roadmaps for taking action, story maps for linking your plans to culture. And the final one is understanding new media and what choices you have for supporting visual working uh, in a distributed virtual kind of way. Well, those are, I understand that those are keys to actually moving yourself and your team to success. Now, uh-huh. are all of these in template form? No, the, the, well, there are templates that work for roadmaps and not so much for the story maps. The story maps are, um, taking a plan that, say, a leadership team has, and then being an inquiry about what the cultural values are that need to go along with it or what the behaviors are that need to go along with it, Mm -hmm. and then exploring metaphors that might point at that in a way that is effective. So, I mean, I'll give you an example of um, there was a unit at Nike uh, that had four functions that didn't look right away like they all went together, but they were all reporting to one boss. Mm. And he really wanted to have a combined vision and seeing how they aligned. And we came up with a, a very clear vision for what they were going to do in words. But then we wanted to put it pictorially and present it to 60 of the top people on a Friday. We were doing this rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I had them all answer the question, you know, this division is like a dot, dot, dot. And they began saying, well, it's like an all-star team. No, it's like a flight control, you know, at the airport. No, it's like a space station. No, it's like this, like that. And what they ended up choosing was that they really, really were like an Olympic team in their own minds, in that they all were running different events 
but they all shared this search for excellence for being the top. Mm. And once they got that, everything fell into place in this drawing. So we had their the words for their priorities in the Olympic rings, and we had their stakeholders out on the field of play, you know, watching. And we showed their um, organizational transformation process as being a training stadium. And the different things that they were going through would be that. But it was all integrated with this Olympics metaphor. Now, for Nike, sports is not an abstraction. Right. Most of the people who work there are actually athletes in some way or another. And so there was a lot of nuance in their understanding of this. Well, every organization will, will have a different answer when you ask them to visualize what they're doing. But when you when you embed information in a graphic metaphor that's really provocative, it then stimulates dialogue all across the organization as you begin critiquing different versions of it. So, I mean, in really good applications, leaders will put out version 1.0, get a lot of input, put out version 2.0, get more input, and... By the time they're finished with this, they've really engaged the whole system in a meaningful uh, conversation about direction and priorities. That is beautiful. I love that. Because there are all kinds of organizations uh, filled with divisions um, of, of different departments that seemingly have no connection. And people turn around and look at the org chart and say, well, now what's that about? And mm-hmm. this really gives that a little bit more meaning. I mean, really what you're talking about is really harvesting some meaning out of yeah. some of this, right? Yeah. Yep. There was an organization uh, in Austin, Texas called Semitech in, in the 70s when the semiconductor business was challenged a lot by Japanese companies. Um, they're a... I think it might be even government-supported thing, but all the different um, semiconductor companies send teams of people to Semitech to co-invent things, and then they all get access to what they come up with. And they had a workshop called Managing the White Spaces uh, that I led, and they said, well, what are you doing here? And they said, well, everybody comes in and knows the org chart. They all know what they're supposed to do, and they all know their technology. But... What they don't know is the differences between Texas Instruments and Intel and National Semiconductor. They all have very different company cultures. And so when it comes to the informal give and take, they don't know how to work with each other. So in about three hours, I had them identify what their formative team experiences were in their life. I mean, were some people in in high school band? You know, were some of them athletes? Were some of them theater? Were some of them in large families? What was their, their what, where did they get their idea about how people should cooperate? And then we put them into groups that were sort of similar and had them answer the question, Semitech is like a dot, dot, dot. And they came up with about two dozen things rather quickly. Mm. And then I asked them, Let, do you want to explore one of them in more depth? Well, it turns out their new director of strategic planning was a rancher. Mm. And I think they were kind of, you know, picking this because of him in some ways. But they said, we we want to look at Semitech as though it were a ranch. Hmm. And so I said, oh, it's a ranch. Okay, what kind of ground do you have? What kind of soil? Well, somebody hollered chelate, which is this really clay-like soil with kind yeah. of hard. hard yeah. And I said, okay, well, what kind of animals? Well, range animals. Oh, range animals. Uh, yeah, and... 
what are these? Well, they're all the projects, you know, for all the different semiconductor companies. And I said, well, any other kind of animals? Well, yeah, they're these predators. Well, what are they? Well, the Intel projects. <laughs> and, you know, everybody's now starting to laugh and, you know, talk about all the things they don't normally talk about. And then I said, well, I, I pushed it a little. I said, are there any other animals? And they said, yeah, they're rodents. And I said, what are those? The consultants. Oh, wow. And so we ended up spending about 45 minutes talking about Semitech all through the lens of this metaphor. And it allowed them to talk about all those white space things mm-hmm. that you that were really, in fact, getting in their way, but they didn't have a language to talk about it. And so I think there's a real role for this visual work in opening up conversations that people don't normally have in ways that are fun and permissive, much the way, you know, with kids, you do storytelling with yeah, they can work through problems through the myth of these story storybooks. Well, it works mm-hmm. for adults too. Right, right, right. Oh, how fun is that? I mean, I just I can see the whole group of people sitting in there having this conversation. It, it I mean, even the way you talk about it creates an image. You know, it, it's very it easy to step into the story. It's really fun. So when you started that, and they of course had some you know, kind of pushed back, but then they kind of got into it. And then at the end, they looked and they had a product. And, you know, what did they do with that product? Well, in in the case of another company, um, you probably heard of Otis Spunkmeyer with the um, cookie, fresh-baked cookies. Yes. Um, they had a very clear strategic plan, but... At the time they started working with us, um, they only had a couple of the people in the top management who really knew what it was because they were the ones who created it, and a lot of it had been done working with finance people. They'd sold the company during that period, gotten some additional funding and some other stuff. And so it's often typical of mid-sized companies where a small group of leaders know what's happening, and then they tell everybody else what's going on. And he really wanted to have it be generally understood what they were doing. So the first step was creating one of these story maps. And we translated about 11 different strategic goals into something called the Otis Cookie Man, which was a person standing on a cookie and then having a bunch of other cookies in kind of a ring around him. Mm. And the ones that were he was standing on were was their core business that they really had to get right in order to do anything else. And the right. ones that he was they were reaching for were the stretch goals. So by mapping these into the human body, which everybody understands somewhat, uh, they were able to create kind of a story inside the strategy. Well, we actually trained the top functional leaders of about eight or nine to use this mural, which was ended up being about four by 16 feet long, um, to, to be able to tell the history and the vision and their strategy uh, as kind of a 15-minute setup for each of the functions doing their annual business planning. And so in the year that they implemented this story map is they had every one of their functions in manufacturing and marketing and trade and all those other areas um, begin by having one of the leaders stand in front of the Otis story map and tell the story of their big strategy. So that when the business did its annual planning, they then did it in context. And that mural stayed up the whole time they were doing their planning. And they then developed their priorities. So the way these are used is to kind of um, 
interrupt the normal flow of communications, which often can be overwhelming. I mean, if you think of the amount of emails you get or anybody gets in a modern organization mm-hmm. and the number of attachments you get, oh, my gosh, you know, it's just overwhelming. But how many times do you get a big visual mural that on one page says it all and that you know your whole leadership team agrees on? This tends to stand out a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's not something you do all the time. You do it on special occasions. Sure. Yeah. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And I can't wait to hear how you, where you're taking this next. So, David, we'll be right back after this message. All right. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with our special guest today, David Sibbett. So, David, the stories you're telling us are just beautiful. I love hearing about how organizations have put this to use and how it has brought teams together and aligned their perspective and vision and thus made it easier for them to get to where they want to go. So I'm curious to know where you're taking this next. You know, as I think about how fast the world has changed, or is changing. I mean, we've talked about a lot of the changes over the last few decades. Right now, the rate of change is exponential, and it's, that's going to continue. And so what is your perspective on how this will be a critical part of your, the work you're doing, a critical part of um, that type of change? Because, you know, my belief is, it's a personal belief, that five-year strategic plans are dead. It's not happening. You can, you can think you want to head somewhere in five years and, you know, two months into your plan, it completely gets turned upside down, right? And so how would you utilize this in scenarios like that? Uh-huh. Well, there are two things that are really calling to me right now. One is how organizations can work at a distance. And uh-huh. I'm very convinced that as... People work more on teleconferences and web conferences and um, email and all the different ways we connect that 
being having more robust language is mm-hmm. is extremely helpful. Um, if I'm talking to a colleague, for instance, and I ask them, um, you know, are you aware of, um, say, situational leadership as a mental model? Mm-hmm. Or are you aware of, say, the team performance model, which is one we developed? Uh, any of these are kind of maps to a certain territory. One mm-hmm. that everybody might know is a little marketing two-by-two two that says, you know, well, we've got new products and new services. Uh, you know, we've got old products and new products. We've got old customers and new customers. So you make four boxes. And you say, well, where are we going? Are we taking an old product to a new customer? Or are we taking a you know, new customer to an old product. Uh, and generally speaking, you don't want to try a new customer and a new product at the same time. Mm. Try to angle into it. So what I'm doing is I'm really pointing at a something you might already know about and then making my point. Uh, this goes beyond metaphor. It goes into the realm of how we think about systems mm-hmm. uh, conceptually. And I don't think it's possible to think about systems if you don't make displays. And this is kind of the second area I'm really interested in. The first is how you work virtually, but it's tied to this, how do you think about systems when you're distributed all over the place. A system is something we describe when we piece together a mental image of how stuff connects. So we go into a restaurant, we sit down, and somebody says, well, you know, how does this restaurant work as a whole organization? Mm -hmm. Well, you're not seeing the kitchen at the time you're out there eating the meal. You're not seeing the food trucks come in the morning. You're not seeing where the waste goes in the evening. You're not seeing all that. But Mm -hmm. if you wanted to understand it as a system, you'd go around and have all these separate experiences. Right. And then you would somewhere put it together. So people who have a more systemic understanding of things are people who created a display in their own mind about how everything connects. So the idea of how you can do this at a distance is a big, interesting area for me because, uh, you know, we've gone through a period where everything narrowed down to email and telephone calls, Mm. which really makes it hard to deal with systemic issues. Right. Now it's broadening back out as the new media allows more and more stuff. So one example would be these smart boards, which have been uh, a leading technology in schools and now are moving into the enterprise, now have software that will allow up to 60 different people to connect an iPad, a computer, and a smart board and all draw together on the same image. Mm. Now, it's a, it's a little tricky learning how to facilitate with that, but it's technically possible. Uh, another early on indicator to me is a the way Prezi has developed. Now, Prezi is this um, zooming presenter out of Budapest, and it allows you to kind of zoom in on something and zoom back out and create a whole you know, sequence through a very large mural of a whole bunch of images. So you can have little images in there that are really tiny when you look at the thing as a whole. You can't even see what they are. And then you zoom in on them, and suddenly they're the whole screen. Uh, they now have created collaboration capability with that zooming presenter that allows a dozen or so people to all be looking at the very same thing in different places and make changes to it. So the people at Prezi actually hold their meetings on that platform. Hmm. Now, again, this is not widespread because it requires you to learn how to use Prezi 
right. enough that it's not standing in the way. Mm-hmm. But practically all the, uh, a lot of the visualization tools are starting to add collaborative elements. And you have on the high end, for instance, telepresence systems, which make it look like you're in the same room, you right. know, when you're right across the, you know, you're looking at right. a couple of television images. But initially it started out, and the assumption is everybody wants to see everybody's faces and their, you know, gestures and stuff first, and they kind of subordinated the graphics. But increasingly, people are realizing, yeah, once we get into the work, we want to look at the work. Yeah. So, you know, back in the 90s when we were first looking at all this stuff, with uh, we were partners with the Institute for the Future looking at the impact of all this group-oriented software on organizations. There was a term called audiographic display, where basically the group is looking at a display, but they're also talking and having really good uh, audiographics. Turns out that's what people do with Skype now. You right. can screen share. Right, right. And so you look at the work and you talk. Uh, right. Same with WebEx. Right. Same right. with uh, Adobe Connect. Right. So I'm really into uh, how all the things we've learned about how people use visuals mm. now can apply to this new media environment. Mm. Uh, as founder of the Grove Consultants International, when is Grove going to have their own medium for visual graphics and visual meetings? <laughs> well, we're in very serious talks right now with several different organizations that want to partner with us on this. I bet you are. Sounds like that's yep. a natural next step. That would be great. Yeah. I'd love to see that. So, David, we have a couple minutes left, and um, I really know that people are going to want to know a whole lot more about this. It's just so fascinating and something you can put right to use. Um, How can people learn more? Well, all three of the books are chock full of exercises. As I said earlier, I really am a believer that you have to go out and do stuff. And probably the starting point in Visual Leaders, I give some tips in this regard. I have seven different practices that an individual person can do to increase their visual IQ. And one of the first is start taking notes visually. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of all the times you take notes. Uh, that really works to raise your own awareness of imagery and how it works because, you know, you're trying to draw pictures and listen to what you could draw pictures of that you listen differently if, if you're doing that. Um, and I think a lot of the kinds of tools that we use with groups it actually apply to an individual. So, for instance, the Grove has a personal visioning workbook that's very popular, mm. where somebody can basically chart out their own personal vision. So I think that's where I would start, is is start playing around with your own thinking, your own note-taking, and um, practicing some of the stuff that are in the books. That's great. Well, I know they're going to want to know more, and so going to your website would be useful. What is your website? It's www.grove.com, and right on the home page, you can click on the book icon, and there's a landing page that explains how you get the three books. They're all available through regular distributors. And we also, of course, have, we're kind of the go-to place for any of the tools people need to work this way. So for professionals who are visual practitioners and do all this kind of thing, we've been training people and creating that field for quite a while now, mm-hmm. which and it, really is, it really is a field now. 
um, I was really honored today. I got a call from the OD Network, and they want me to uh, keynote at their October uh, conference in San Jose in parallel with Ed Shine, who is like one of my heroes in the field of the organization development <laughs> movement. And I'm so excited because what they want is they want to hear about the underlying theory behind this. You know, how could we work in a way that integrates across meetings, teams, and org change with one set right. of tools? Right, right. So that's well, what I'm going to be dealing with. Well, that's fabulous. Well, congratulations on that. And I can't wait to see where you guys take this next. You're such an innovative group, and David, you're such a big thinker. We are just so grateful to have you here on Leading Conversations. Thanks again. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.